All right, thank you, music team, for leading us in worship, and it's good to be back together again this Sunday. You know, we're a little more accustomed to handling snow. It used to be that we were debating, do you cancel, do you have the service, and then you're thinking we didn't get to meet, and so we learned a few things this last year, didn't we? And we're still learning. But our text is the Scriptures, God's Holy Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is Paul's letter to his beloved friends in the city of Corinth, which is in the middle of Greece, connecting two large masses of land, and ships come in from both sides, and a very cosmopolitan city. And this is a place that he went and led many to Christ and began discipling them, and they were going through some real difficulties. So this, this is where we're picking up. I don't want to do too much review, but if you're joining us to put this in context, because when we jump into this verse, you're going to go, where did that come from? It's not the kind of verse that you'd pick to speak on, uh, but you come across this and realize that some of those are the most appropriate and most relevant and most helpful to, to us in, in all of the Bible. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Okay. And we're talking about marriage. What is the big deal about marriage? I think what we're going to find that for whatever age you are, whatever place you are in life, this, this applies because This will hit at really the foundation and the moral fiber of our society, of our churches, of the upbringing of our kids, of our colleges, of the way that we think, the way that we see God, the way we interact with God. And the more I spend time in this, I've realized how important it is for us to get this foundation. We are in a spiritual warfare in our society right now, and a lot of these beliefs that the church has held to for many years are now being severely tested. And it's important that we know how to respond, and that's kind of where we're, we're headed in this. So as we, we go through this, the big deal about marriage, we're going to, to look at five reasons. One, the problems, the plan, the purpose, the picture, and the preservation. Now, I try, I try to think in, in terms of structure in putting this out. Maybe that'll help you. Maybe that, maybe that won't help you as much. But the problems. There were problems in marriages in Corinth, just like we have today. And I think we, we try to tie the two together. What was happening in the city of Corinth, which is almost 2,000 years ago, and what's happening today, uh, there are a lot of differences. We, we have modernization, we we have a little different culture, but human nature is the same, God is the same, basic temptations and difficulties are the same. And what was happening in this city was, it it was a pagan city, which meaning they didn't believe in God, they didn't follow God, they had our God that we know, many gods, and polytheistic, they, they had a God for everything. And it was a very, very, what we would call sinful, wicked city. A a lot of things going on in this city. And what had happened was the church began to mirror its culture. In other words, uh, rather than being uniquely different and uniquely Christian, which we are called to be, we're, we're to be in the world but not worldly, we should be attractive 
But what, what had happened is they're not only committing the same sins the rest of the world is, they're committing sins that even the world isn't committing. Now, the word that for sexual immorality is porneia in the Greek, which we get at porn, pornography, which means any sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage. In other words, the way God designed sexual activity to take place was it within the bounds of marriage. Any sexuality outside of that is sin, and it's destructive. And Jesus went on to say not only that, your activity, but the way that you think in your mind, if you're entertaining thoughts, you sinned already in your heart. You say, we're all guilty, which is true. And that's just another way to, to expose the agony of our humanity. And so what was happening, this particular sin, it says the, the young man is having a, a wrong relationship with his father's wife, his, his stepmother. Now, it's, it's a bit amusing probably that the, the Corinthian pagans are saying, we don't even do that when they're doing probably everything else. <laughs> you know, so you think, well, how do you think you're so righteous and we're so bad? And, uh, but everybody has their own moral standards. Uh, Dostoevsky, you may have remembered that uh, name, uh, writer of Crime and Punishment in the 19th century. He was a, a Russian author and philosopher. He also wrote uh, Brothers Karmanov, for those of you that uh, read those types of novels. But he said this. He said, if there is no God, all things are permissible. Think about that. If there is no God, all things are permissible. In other words, if there is no God, there is no authority, there is no absolute truth, then, then basically every, everyone is creating their own moral standards. So Corinthians just say, we don't even do that. Well, we don't do what you do. And what happens when there is no God and everything is permissible, pretty soon everything is done. And, and this is what we've watched, I think, over the last 70 years, uh, or really since World War II, just a moral freefall in our country. And it, it's by pushing God out in a lot of ways of our culture, even when people weren't Christians, we at least would have, you know, Ten Commandments on the public school walls. We'd have God in the public uh, uh, schools through prayer and that sort of thing. So in, in our, with our increasing desire as a culture in America to push God out, all things become permissible. And so now we're like the state of California is uh, entertaining thoughts of uh, legalizing pedophilia. Um, you, you, you think, how could this be? Of course, you know, where we are today, 30 years ago, you think, how could we ever be at that place? And yet, this is what happens when you have no moral bearing. And, and I think that what, what happens is we see this problem. There's a problem in Corinth. We see the same problem today. And where you see it most, where I see it most, is with college students. I see it with children. Because you go into the average public school, and I know when Diane will come back and she subs in the, in the public school system, she'll say, you know, I, I don't know if there's one kid in my whole class on any given day that has a, a healthy home environment. In other words, there, there's a mom and dad who love each other and love their kids and are there for them. And I think that, that really is, is that has fallen apart. It has impacted 
everything. And so what happens to those kids is they're looking for identity, sexuality, meaning in life. And so they're on this search for it. And they're experimenting with everything. And they're not finding anything. And they become incredibly depressed and discouraged. And, and it's a tragedy. And this is not just in the public sector. In the same way in the Corinthian church, the modern-day church, I would say the popular Christianity in America, has become so much like the world, it's indistinguishable. We, we have catered to their ways so that they'll like us. In other words, you know, we're going we're gonna to be cool. You know, we don't want to say anything that's offensive, and so... Uh, we're going to accommodate everything, and so, but you're not accommodating truth. So there is no moral bearing, there is no more f- moral fiber, there is no foundation, there, there are no, there's no structure for kids to hang on to and identify what boundaries are to feel safe. Kids feel safe when they understand what truth is. So these are the problems there and here today, and that's why I believe that probably this message for us that Paul's giving to them is probably as, as timely as it was for them. So these are the problems. Secondly, the plan for marriage. What is the plan? And, I, and I, if I, as I've said before, I'm coming from a biblical worldview, not just a quote-unquote popular Christian worldview, but a biblical worldview that I believe God has spoken. He has spoken truth. <clears throat> I believe that because he says it. I believe that, that because I, I believe it's proven true over time. So what is the plan for marriage? How did God design this? And I think when you go back to, to uh, Genesis, and you can go with me if you'd like or just listen, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 really describes creation, and God really setting in order this. Creator, designer, sustainer of all things. This is God. So in chapter 2 of Genesis in verse 7, it says, And then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So that's how God created man. This is where you came from, guys? Dirt. Okay, great foundation. Women are, are what I say, twice refined. <laughs> so then we move over to verse 18. It says, And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper. And actually, the word helper is a completer. It's it's someone, it's like God made man. And it's the only time in creation God didn't finish it up by saying it is good. Sorry, guys, again. (laughs) It's like God said, created, it is good. Created, it is good. Created, it is good. Created, it is good. Created man. God saw that there was no completer. I want you to see that, completer. So as we move on to verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused... God has an answer for things like this. Man is really incomplete. So the God caused a, the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and then he closed up the place of the flesh, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman 
for she was taken out of the man, brought back to the man here. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become, listen to this, one flesh. It's a miracle. And what, what is really powerful, I think, when we, when we talk about, because this, this is God's completion. Marriage is not a competition. The world makes it a competition of trying to be, are we equal, 50-50? You do this, I do this. It's a competition. And there's conflict. God makes it a one-flesh union, completion. And then when he got finished with this, he said, it is good. Get that, it is good, because he has completed that work. Now, where did God take the bone from Adam? Right here. Right here. Right over his heart. Not his heel, not his foot, for him to rule over. Not from his head, for her to rule over him, but from his heart, from his side. Right here. And I think that that shows something of God's intent of how this one flesh, this union. Now, I know that we live in the world of imperfection, and some of you are saying, oh, man, I wish I could see that reality. But stay with me on this, okay? But I'm talking, God has created all of this, chapters 1 and 2, in perfection. Chapter 3, we get into the fall, how all of that got distorted and twisted. In fact, the way of Satan is, is usually not to throw you a curveball with something totally new and wicked. He wants to take a good thing, like the physical relationship, and distort it and twist it. Remember that. He will take a good thing that God has given and promised and twist it. Just a little bit to alter that. And just keep on, keep on until we don't recognize even what was the original plan. So... God has this plan, and he has brought them together, and a marriage, as best as I can, if I could sum up defining what a marriage is, it is a covenant. It's not two people having a physical relationship. That's not it. Outside the bonds of marriage, that's porneia, okay? Um... And, and it's not going to be fulfilling. It's a covenant. A covenant, if you go through the Old Testament, you'll find covenants are interesting because it's kind of a strange how they would do it. You, it was a promise. It was an agreement between two people, and it was before witnesses. So you'd usually gather at the city gate. You'd have your discussion. You're, you're buying, selling land, making an agreement, uh, so forth. You, you, and, and guys would trade sandals. <laughs> so I'm going to take my sandal off. I'm going to give you my sandal. You give me your sandal. That sounds a little weird, but it was, there was a physical exchange, and that's kind of how you get the exchange of rings. Um, there, there is a covenant, an agreement, a promise before God and before others that is, in a sense, public. And it is a commitment that you will pledge yourself to that person in this relationship as long as you both shall live. Now, I realize this, there is not one family in this assembly that has, has not been impact, impacted by families breaking up. 
Not one. Not one. Every family here has either been directly or indirectly impacted by divorce. So God is not, when, when, when the pieces fall apart and it doesn't go as planned, God doesn't wring his hands and go, now what do I do? The plan is broken. No, God will take you where you are. So don't get discouraged by this. I'm just saying that as you teach your children how God's designed it, <laughs> and if you're at a fresh start, a place in your life where you got a fresh start, you've been divorced or you, you, you have a spouse that's passed away or you've yet to get married or you're a child, you're thinking about this or you're training your children, come back to the scriptures because God has designed this and planned this and he's blessed this. And there is no faster way to find fulfillment and joy and happiness than, than to do as God has planned. Yes, he's done it for his glory ultimately, but he's done it for your good. And when we obey God and follow his word, it is the greatest chance for us to be at peace. You're just going to see that time and time again. So, two people making a promise, a covenant together to be committed to one another. And then in that relationship, there is the physical part of it as well. That's the way God's designed it. So, the problems, the plan, the purpose. What is the purpose of marriage? <laughs> and I think probably the most common idea today is why get married? I mean, it just complicates things. Um, just be together, live together. And that's why if, if God's not in the picture, there's no really reason because you're just thinking, you know, what? It just then you get, if you get into it, you got to get out of it. As they said, people that are, it's like the cows uh, at the fence, you know, some are reaching their head through this way and the others are reaching their head through this way. Uh, those, are, those are married when I get out. Those are not married when I get in. <laughs> um, so I think that being content right now and just, just saying, okay, wherever I am right now, if I'm a kid, Thinking about it, now certain ages, don't, they don't want to think about it. They don't even talk about it. <laughs> but at some point they do. Um, or you're done, or you're probably never going to get married again. This does impact the way we function. It, it affects this church, and it, we relate, and, and you'll see this. So what is the purpose of marriage? I'm going to give you four of these. This is all under purpose. They all start with C. Again, sometimes I'm, I'm an addict with that. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll alliterate stuff and then de-alliterate it, if that's a word. Uh, because I think I just do this too much. But anyway, completion, companionship, children, and communication. So let me, let me go through with them. Uh, number one, completion. This is a purpose of God is what I already mentioned, completing something. Okay, this is part of creation that God completes a man by bringing to him a woman. It doesn't mean that every man should be married or every woman should be married. But... But this is God's design, and you start to realize that as you grow in your faith, as you grow in, in your marriage and you grow in your faith, how that, uh, that relationship, that completion is, God just knew what he was doing. And, you know, it's funny because when, when you first get married, I remember like you're dating, Diane and I dated for four years before we got married. And... Um, when we got married, you know, it's like, oh, this is going to be really easy. And then I thought, well, she thinks like me. I know she's got to think like me. Everybody thinks like me, right? You think like me. And, and she's probably thinking the same way. And the way she needed to be loved and the way I was used to or thinking I should do it were different. And, and I think what, what happens is that 
God does a lot of breaking. There is nothing that will expose your selfishness and your self-centeredness more quickly than getting married. Nothing. I mean, usually home situations will do that, which is you've got kids in the house. I tell my grandkids, the hardest place to live a Christian life is at home. (laughs) But you step that up several notches for marriage. But as God begins to humble me and, and cause a brokenness, humility, and a, uh, a sacrificial spirit in my heart, a crucified life, I would say a death to self, and God is working a death in the life of my wife, we become alive to the life of Christ. Now, for most marriages without God, without Christ, they're just going to end up splitting up because they just, you know, eventually you just get sick of each other. So how can people that are so madly in love and it's just wonderful, wonderful, all of a sudden hate each other? That's why. Because what God has given you, your differences to sharpen one another, sanctify one another, which, which means cause each other to grow. That's his design. And I look back now, we've been married for 40 years uh, this summer. And uh, been together, you know, known her for like 45. And I can see more than ever, more than ever now, God sanctifying my life and causing me to grow through my relationship with my wife. And it's not because, oh, you just picked the right one. Well, I did, but, you know, it's, uh, the thing is that that's God's intent of completing Diane's life being married to me, and for, for completing my life by being married to her. And this is it's a beautiful thing, but it takes the grace of God. So we are not a model of perfection, but of the, God, of the grace of God. And that's the way every Christian marriage should be. It's not, you're not perfect. You don't pretend you're perfect, but it is a testimony of God's grace and God's goodness. And, and your kids will see that, and everyone else will too. So completion. Number two, companionship. Um, I would say this, there's nothing I enjoy more. Say, what's your favorite hobby? Just hanging out with my wife, (laughs) doing stuff with her. Um, I'm thankful for that. Um, But companionship, or we think think of just the uh, suitability, the love love for one another. I've talked a number of times about uh, the four loves. Now, we use the word English love. The Greeks in the New Testament had four words for it. And, and, I, and I, I don't want to overdo this, but I think it's important we understand that because marriage is the only place where all four loves are active. No other relationship on earth has that. Okay? I want you to follow this. First word for love, storge, which is what's familiar. In other words, a circumstance or a situation or... An experience is, I love that, you know, it's coming home. It's Christmas at home. You got the tree, you got the house, your home, you got the, the food cooking. It's, it's, you love being there. You love, and that's the way in marriage it should be. It should be you love being together. Um, but those things, those circumstances don't love me back, okay? It's pretty much, I get great feelings by this, and so I love this. I, I I love this house. I love this dinner. I love I love being together. I love the atmosphere. I love those smells, the sounds of Christmas, Thanksgiving, so forth. So there's that storge. The second 
word that is used in the New Testament is phileo. That's a little more familiar. Um, phileo is a brotherly love. It's a sisterly love. It is what we share together as a church family. And, and what that means is that, that you and I have the same passion. We have the same love. And this is what pulls us together. Okay? Now, it doesn't matter how many people. We could have one or two or three or five or ten or, or go back to six and go to 20. It doesn't matter. You know, people can come and go, but the thing that holds us together is it's not focused on you, it's not focused on me, it's our common passion, which in marriage is really critical, folks, that Christ be that greatest passion. Now, you can love other things like boating and fishing and, uh, of course, going to Cabela's and things like that. Um, that's a joke. But, uh, so, but you, you have a lot of common things that you enjoy doing together that are common ground. But the, the one commonality to make a marriage work is, is, is God. It's, it's, that's important. So phileo is a very important type of love. And it gets deeper the stronger that passion is. But it's m not so much about you and me as it is about what we share in passion. The third love that you hear about all the time is agape. Agape love is what you hear. It, it was pretty much new to New Testament times in the church in, in uh, 1 Corinthians and other times. Agape is, a, is love that is unconditional and sacrificial, which, which is impossible. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a God-like love. In other words, for God so loved the world, God loved you. When there was nothing about you to love, God loved you. It means that I love my wife no matter what. No matter what. No matter how she looks, what she does, where she goes, what she says, no matter what she's done, I love her. Now, you see how that's impossible? Because most all of us, it's like, you do this, I do this, or because of this, I do this, and it's, it's more reciprocal. Agape love is, a, is, is the love where, like, Christ laid down his life on the cross for you. Okay? We're called to do that. And I am to love my wife like that. So for the man, it means sacrificing, which most men are not good at doing. This, this is used in Ephesians 5. Love your wife the same way Christ loved you, the church. Like, whoa, how did he love me? He died on a cross. So guys, die on a cross for your wife. <laughs> so when you're all about your rights and you're 50-50, this is not a 50-50 love. This is a 100% love. To my wife, her love to me is 100%. She submits. There are two words we choke on. Sacrifice, guys, women, submit. But both of them, both those words, but the world hates these words, call you to die. They call you to die. For me to sacrifice like Christ did for us is for me to die for my wife. Give it up. And to submit is the same way Christ submitted to his father by going to the cross. And this is not a matter of equality. This is a matter of completely abandonment. So that's, that's the third one. The fourth one is the word eros. <clears throat> now, Immediately, we think of the physical relationship. When you, when you think of eros, erotic, <clears throat> that, oh, that's just, that's just that's what we don't talk about that one in church. But here's the thing. That's part of it. But the most amazing thing about this is where 
The first kind of love, storge, means I love this situation, circumstance, it can't love me back. Phileo is we love the same mission. It's not about us. Agape is I love you 100% with no expectation in return. But eros is when I get married, I love my wife and there is no other. There is no room for anyone else. That makes sense? And that's the kind of love that God calls us to have. Now, the physical part is there too, but it's basically saying that you are the one woman in all the world. I love others with phileo love and other kind of love, you know, agape love, but I love you. You're special. Does that make sense? I mean, it's powerful. So, and, and there's no room to add a third or fourth person or to take away another person. And that love is intense and it is passionate and it's one. So, and that's, you say, well, what does that have to do with my spirituality or my kids or the church? Because that's the kind of love that God wants us to have for him. Not the physical relationship, but God, you are the only God. You're the only one I worship. Every one of these loves is an important part of the makeup of the believer. And so what, what this does, this companionship, uh, leads me to my third point here, and I'll put it a little bit different order, but we have completion, God completes it. Uh, com- this uh, companionship, the four loves, um, moves me to communication. Because when I love my wife in these four ways... It communicates to the world how Christianity functions more than anything else. If someone wants to know how to relate to God, how to relate in Christianity, the greatest example we have is not your personal testimony. Now, this is new to me probably within the last three years, to be honest with you. I mean, I've been preaching for 40, almost 46 years. This is new to me. I usually think the greatest way I can show, show you what it's like to live a godly life is live a godly life. You know, be in, read my Bible, pray, be obedient to God, serve God. You know, it's, 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 it's me. But you know what? A better, realistic example of authentic Christianity, because Christianity is all about relationships is when I have a marriage like this. Now, none of us meet a perfect standard. I realize that. I'm not just saying you model perfection, but you model the grace of God working these things in you. So when people watch how Diane and I relate together, and they see a, a, a people that really love each other in these four ways... They kind of get an idea of the fullness of love, which is the face of Christianity. Remember how many times have I said to you the the most important projection that we make to the world about what Christianity is like is not doctrine. As much as I love systematic theology and I read doctrine books all the time, the most important thing is love. They will know you are Christians by the love that you have for one another. That's it. So this is so critical 
the communication. And then the fourth reason or purpose for marriage, we have completion, companionship, communication, and finally, children. <laughs> now, not everyone has children. Um, I'm not saying that, that you're out of God's will if you don't have children. I'm just saying that that is one of the reasons for purposes for the design of marriage. So let's move on to the picture. And I think that this is, uh, to me, really helpful. And it, it kind of builds off that communication idea. What, what is God? It's not just about you and your spouse. It's not just about me and Diane. God, in, when he created this marriage, the institution of marriage, he is drawing a picture. My dad used to say that to me all the time. Do I need to draw you a picture? <laughs> uh, he's drawing us a picture of something transcendent, something bigger than just this physical marriage. Marriage is a mystery. Now, I could make, probably make some jokes on that, but uh, I won't. Marriage is a mystery. How two can become one, right? So you have one person, one person, two people, individuals, become one. That's what he says in Genesis. Become, it's a mystery. But it's a bigger picture of how God is one. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're all equal. They're equal, right? Christ isn't less than God the Father, the Spirit less than... No, no, they're all equal, but they function together in perfect unity. So your marriage is a picture of people understanding how God works. It's also a picture of how we're one with Christ. When you invite Christ into your life, it says you become one with Christ. That's a mystery. It's a beautiful mystery. And if you try to figure all that out, your brain's going to get tired. <laughs> and then finally, the body of believers. This family, Valley community, is we're all individual people, and yet we're one body. We're one church. So how does that work? It's a mystery. So we're one, and we're yet individuals. And so your marriage pictures all of this. Now, this is so important to understand because a picture matters. The picture we draw matters of how people see God, how they see our relationship with Christ, how they see the church. The picture matters. How much does it matter? Well, do you remember, many of you have been reading through the Bible, through the Old Testament, and you remember that in the wilderness, they're in the desert, and they're wandering around, and they're thirsty, and they're complaining to Moses. And so God says to Moses, go and strike the rock with your rod, and water will come forth. So he goes, and he strikes the rock. Water comes out, and it satisfies the people. Later on, same thing happens. And God says, speak to the rock. And I'll bring forth water. But Moses, like a lot of us, got ticked. He was really ticked. And he probably had good reason to be ticked at the people because they're always complaining. He, instead of speaking to the rock, he took his rod and he struck the rock twice. Boom! Boom! And water, you know what? It worked. For us pragmatists, it worked. It wasn't right, though. Now, 
So, so God says, because you did that, you can't go into the promised land. Everybody else can, but you can't. So here again, we ask the question, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? I mean, all the sins that these people committed, and he can't go in because he did that? Are you serious? It's because he messed with a picture. So you go to the New Testament, and you go all the way over here, and it tells you what this was all about. It says the rock is Christ. The water is the water of life. Christ must be struck how many times? How many times did he die? How many times was he atoning for our sins? One time, once for all, finished. And so when you strike it twice, it's like, we got to keep on doing this. We got to keep on making sacrifices. We got to keep on good works, right? Remember how we said Christianity is defined not by what you do, by what is done. And so when Moses did that, it, it destroyed the picture. And that's why I think that when marriage falls apart in our culture, in our homes, the, the negative impact is far greater than anything else. You know, sin is sin. You know, you tell a lie, you steal something small, but there are some sins that have greater effect. They do greater damage. And I, I think when the, when the home, the structure of the marriage, which is center of the marriage, is being destroyed, it, do, it causes more damage to more people than others do. So finally, the preservation of marriage. Well, only God can do that. I think for our culture, um, I would say just a couple points here, and then we'll wrap this up. For our culture, you realize that if people don't believe in God or question God or the the Many evangelical Bible-believing churches today are not obeying God's word. So in other words, you know, you know, we don't have to talk about things like this. We don't bring that up. Whatever you feel is right. When, when we do that, um, we're not helping anyone. Our culture, if they don't believe in God, they're not going to believe in what we're saying here. So expect that <laughs> that's, that's the way they are. I think we ought to vote to help preserve marriage. I think we ought to do everything we can as citizens in our country to preserve the institution of marriage, whether people are Christian or not. But don't forget the bigger picture. What they need more than a good marriage is they need Jesus. Don't forget that. Because when we're arguing, you know, we're, we're winning battles, political battles or other battles here, and we're losing the war. The big picture is people need Jesus. And if they get Jesus... They get everything. They, they, get, they get the answer, the ability to be able to resolve these greater problems. So do all you can to help promote healthy marriages, encourages healthy marriages, but don't be shocked when the world that doesn't believe in God acts as if there is no God. So for our homes, most of us come from fractured homes. Don't, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. So don't, don't live under a cloud. If you've gone through stuff and junk, don't live under a cloud. That's Satan. That's not God, okay? A lot of people, they've messed up in the past in various ways. And, you know, Jesus nails it when he says, if you haven't done it in actual physical ways, you've done it in your mind. We're, I mean, okay, so 
Don't walk around with a cloud over your head. That is not the way God wants you to live. You're free. Your sins have been forgiven. There is no condemnation. However, from this point on, from wherever you are right now, let's follow the Lord. That's the best chance we have from where we are now to have healthy marriages, to teach our children not only what a healthy marriage is, to show them, uh, be quick to confess your sins, parents, to your kids. It's tough, (laughs) I know. Um, Be honest, transparent, open. Show them the grace of God as you grow. Help them experience how you're working through these things. Teach them. Help them be equipped to how to, how to have conversations at school when people say, I believe in gay marriage or, or three people being married or, or changing your sex or your identity. How do they respond with great confidence and love? Remember we talked about that last week? Love and truth. Love and truth. And for our church, that's how we live. Um, so in this context here, uh, Paul is saying that, that uh, these people, one of the problems has just been, they've been arrogant about this. They've not dealt with it. And I think that when, when this happens in the church, okay, let's say this, this happens in, in our church. How do we handle it? And we've talked about this, but I want to go over it real quickly. One, you go to them privately. You deal with this privately. You don't just make a big federal case out of it. You deal with it privately. You do it in love. But you do do it. You don't just ignore it. These people were ignoring it. And so what's happening is someone over here is crashing and burning, and they're thinking, oh. See, if I go there, they might get mad at me. They'd probably start crying and saying, I need help. I need help. We've got to love people enough to say, you know what, hey, what's going on? Ask questions. What's going on? What can I do? How can I help you? I just need help. I'm just, I feel trapped. I'm overtaken with this. What do I do? I'll help you. I'll help you. Let's work through this together. That's how you do it. Now, if they say, you know what? I'm going to live the way I want to live. <laughs> and you know what? After repeated going to them, going to them, you finally say as a church, we're not going to celebrate the festival with you. You're not really, we're not going to sit at the Lord's table like everything's fine. We're not going to pray with you and just treat this. It's not that you don't talk to them anymore. It's, but you don't go on as if nothing has happened. And you pray for them. And when he says you, you turn them over to Satan, I always say this, you turn someone over to Satan. In other words, if you're not going to follow God, go on out there out under God's umbrella of protection and Satan is having his day with you. But over Satan is a a sovereign God. So Satan can't touch you with anything that God does not allow. God may allow through Satan, as it says here, to bring you to repentance. God chastens his children. So... It's part of the love of God. And then when that time comes, you're ready to receive them back. You're ready to say, hey, well, welcome back. So good. Always ready. Uh, like the father of the prodigal son, to embrace them and welcome them home. We ought to be the best people at that. And my prayer is, as I said last week, concluding, I'll wrap this up here, is that God gives this church backbone that we will speak the truth. We will not cave in our culture. We will not compromise this because we know it glorifies God and it is a good for people. May God give us the courage to do that. There are few churches that are doing it today. But may God also give us abounding love, that, that people look at us and see we really love them, and that when we do come and talk to them, it's because we love them. It's not because we're, 
Aha! If God gives you discernment to see something, it's not to judge them in the sense of being judgmental. It's to intercede for them and help them. Just remember that. God gives you that gift of discernment. Uh, A lot of people say, oh, God gives me the gift of discernment, so they start criticizing people. God gives you the gift of discernment to intercede. So our takeaway. Let's talk about the takeaway. We've got two groups of people. We've got unmarried and married. (laughs) So the unmarried, you have some that are yet to be married, some that have been divorced or fractured homes, and some that are widowed. I would say to you, don't allow your experience to define your life. Whatever gap there is of what there has been of loss or yet to be fulfilled, not everybody has to get married. Paul said, I'm not getting married. I don't think you're ready to be married until you are content with where you are. That's tough. You got to be content. Lord, if this is your will, I think you'd be honest with God. Say, Lord, I don't want to be single, but I'm willing to do that. And the second thing is before you get married, you need to be walking with the Lord. And the, and the one you're dating needs to be walking with the Lord. And you need to take this as he leads you along that path. To the unmarried kids, help your kids. You can't force them into this. You better you teach them. For, for those that are married, there's so much you can't control when you're married. But you can be the right person. So I'd say to the married person, be the right person, keep a right spirit, and leave the results with God. Sometimes it doesn't work out, even when you do the best you can. But that's how we approach that. We value it in in God's design and plan, but also realizing that for every one of us at every place in life, we need the grace of God. (laughs) Amen? We need it. And my prayer is this, that we'll show that by the way we live, by promoting healthy marriages. Marriage is a big deal. It is a big deal. It sets the foundation for our, our homes, our church, our entire culture. And I believe that the, the greatest breakdown in America is in the home and in our marriages. That's what's happened. And... It's not the pagan world. It's our homes and our churches uh, that have really broken down. So let's pray that God would help us, by his grace, to be everything we should be. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. And and I'd just like for you to quietly take some time to pray that the Lord would help you. Wherever you are, if you're unmarried, for whatever reason, uh, never been married, or been divorced or lost a spouse that God would minister to you through this message to help you find the joy and fulfillment and satisfaction that Christ can meet. For those of you that are married, would I pray with you that God would help strengthen your marriage by helping you not have a better wife or a better husband, but help you to be the person you need to be and trust God to accomplish the rest. And that that framework and structure would be felt throughout our church and our community for the glory of God. Father, we pray that you would 
seal these things in our heart. Help us to, to just give thanks to you for your perfect design and institution of marriage. Help us to value it and, and seek your help to realize the blessing that comes when we follow your path. I pray for everyone here, Lord. I pray especially for our kids and for this city and for our nation and this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.